Hey, this is Patrick from Last Born in the Wilderness. Thank you for calling. Uh, if you have a particular question you want to ask me, just ask me here. If you have a phone number or an email, please let me know what that is, and I'll get back to you. Uh, but if you have something you want to say that I, I could put on the beginning of these podcasts, please try to keep it anywhere from, I would say, 30 seconds to two and a half to three minutes, I think is, is a good length. Or if you just want to send me some thoughts or ideas, talk as long as you want. Just let me know what your intention is with this call. Thank you. I hope everything is going well on your end. Have a good one. Hey Patrick, uh, this is Rob Simons. I don't really have any ideas for you because I think you've got it all under control, but instead I just thought I'd call and pitch this show to other people, especially people that listen but maybe aren't financially supporting you. Um, I, I would just say to people that are listening to this show, what Patrick does for us is a gift, and that's something that we hopefully can recognize, and any kind of money that you can give Patrick to help support him in this project, I think is worthwhile. I think that he has a, a specific st- skill set that not many people have, and um, that should be recognized. I, my, my hopes for Patrick is to have him be doing this project full time, and this is his, his sole job, and uh, I think you do a great job, Patrick. I think truly are a sincere person and you are very sincere in what you're doing and trying to help people understand what's happening to our world. So I look forward to listening to future episodes and, you know, being a about to be a father, um, I'm going to be relying on your show and your commentary to help steer me through and, and guide myself through fatherhood. So thank you for everything that you've done for me personally, and uh, thank you for everything that you're doing for everyone else. Hey folks, so that thing you heard there at the beginning, that is a new thing that I'm trying out. Uh, If you want to call this phone number, and I'm going to give that phone number to you in just a moment, but if you want to call that phone number, you can leave a message just like Rob did. And I'll put those potentially at the beginning of these podcasts from now on. The idea is that I want people to leave somewhere between 30 seconds to, say, three minutes of a message, something that they feel that that they want to broadcast to the world, or at least to the audience uh, of this podcast. Um, Rob is somebody that I've uh, talked with previously on the podcast. I think he's been on two different episodes. Uh, he is somebody I've gotten to know uh, more and more through social media and through just personal communication with him. Uh, he's a great person, and he has his own really amazing show called Moving Forward on the Progressive Radio Network. The idea, of course, is that Rob calls this number. He leaves a message. I have that message, and I can just use it. Now, the thing that I would also say is that if you don't want this message to be broadcast on the podcast, please state that as your intention with the message and use it as a way to ask me a question, to air concerns or ideas directly to me. Uh, You can leave as long a message as you can. Uh, I don't know if there's a limit with the voicemail, but you can leave a message and, and just say whatever the hell you want. This will give you an opportunity to just sort of viscerally release anything through the through a message, a voicemail message. So uh, this is just a new thing I, I'm, I'm starting uh, because I, I remember I was listening to some episodes of another podcast called Tangentially Speaking by uh, Christopher Ryan. He's the author of Sex at Dawn. It's a really great book. Uh, but he does this thing where people send in like 30 seconds or less of, of like where they're at in the world, what they're doing, and, and you know some other message like that. And he includes them at the beginning of his episodes. I thought that was just a really, really cool idea. And so I'm doing something a bit similar, except instead of having you send me audio files through email, you can just call this number. And that phone number is area code 208-918-283. Three seven. That's two zero eight nine one eight 
2837. That phone number is down below in the description. If you look in the episode notes, you'll see drop me a line and there'll be a phone number there. Give that a call. Another quick thing, if you want to learn anything else about this project, you can go to the website lastborninthewilderness.com and there you'll find every episode I've produced, every segment I've released from each episode. You'll find all these other extras and other things that I put on that website, uh, other interviews and things that I've done with other podcasts. Uh, You'll find my TEDx talk. You'll find my live podcast I did a month or so ago with Dar Jamal and Dr. Bones. And actually, the guest for this episode is uh, someone I found out about, the organization I found out about because of Dr. Bones and that interview with him. So please go check out that live podcast. You can find that on the website. Um, If you want to support this project, you can do so uh, through a one-time donation link, the PayPal link, which is paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. A link to that is in the description. Like I said, it can make a very small or whatever size donation you want through that. And if you want to support this project more regularly, if you actually want to help support me in this work on a more regular and sustained basis, uh, you can do so through the Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness, and there you can make a very small or whatever, again, whatever size donation you want. Uh, it's a monthly donation, and uh, it'll help me get further away from doing the day job and spend more time researching, preparing for interviews, setting up interviews, and making episodes and releasing them because this is my passion. This is something I care very deeply about. But regardless of whether you're able to or not support this monetarily, financially, uh, please just tell your friends, tell anybody you care about that may be interested in these subjects about this podcast, share this with as many people as you possibly can help get the word out. Anyway, I I thank you all for your attention up to this point. Here's the episode. In this episode, I speak with Desiree Lynn. Now, Desiree is a spokesperson for Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. She is a volunteer, she is a street medic, and she is a co-organizer in this network, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. So to give you a brief description of what Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is, I'm just going to, to quote their website. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is a national network made up of many eco-activists, social justice activists, global justice activists, permaculturalists, community organizers, and others who are actively organizing around supporting disaster survivors in a spirit of mutual aid and solidarity. It is a decentralized network defined by the character and creativity of a multitude of communities and drawn together by our collective commitment to stand in solidarity with those impacted by disasters and turn the tide in favor of climate justice. So in this discussion, we, of course, talk about the founding of this network and the underlying principles. As I mentioned in that description, it is a decentralized network. These are groups of people who are not making any money. This isn't a charity. You're you're not giving that you're not you're not donating money to some organization that will then later decide how they wish to allocate those resources to the people. Uh, what they're doing is they're going into communities that have been directly impacted by for instance, the wildfires in California or, or cities and regions in the south that have been deeply impacted by very severe hurricanes and storms. Uh, you know, a, a really potent example of what mutual aid disaster relief is capable of is what happened in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, of course, is not a sovereign nation. It is a colony, essentially, of the United States, and it is not represented in our Congress. So there's very little, in in the form of the the state power structure, uh, there's very little uh, resources for these people to demand uh, that they get power back, that they get clean water and and all of the various infrastructure uh, that they need uh, back in order. Uh, The U.S. government has essentially abandoned this island and uh, the people have have suffered greatly under this, uh, the the after effects of Hurricane Maria. Uh, Desiree was actually there. She she went to Puerto Rico. She saw what was happening on the ground. She saw that spontaneously, 
people started to organize their communities and and built soup kitchens and and started to distribute resources to the best of their ability. And when mutual aid disaster relief came in, they were actually providing resources and they were actually helping people get their lives back in order um, based on what the needs and the desires of the people in that place had, not from a top-down hierarchical structure telling people, you need this and this is how much we're going to give you. It was like, what do you need? How can we help? All of this in the name of solidarity, all of this in the name of of non-coercive action and help. So Desiree is, again, as I mentioned, a spokesperson of this organization. She does not speak for every single person of this organization, and that's kind of the point. Uh, She is an anarchist. And as we get into this discussion and when we get into the principles of this network, we talk about the benefits of structuring an organization like this, especially in in light of the the growing ecological crisis, the climate crisis, as more and more communities around the United States, around the world, are becoming deeply impacted by climate disasters, we need to start thinking about how to take care of each other. And it's going to be a little challenging, obviously, and there's a lot of things that we need to learn. But mutual aid disaster relief is a step in the right direction, a big step in the right direction. And the people that work for it, that are are volunteering on behalf of it, are doing something that I think, again, uh, we need to start uh, spending more of our time and attention towards, especially as the climate crisis gets worse on this planet. And, you know, another thing that we get into is how mutual aid, this desire to just help one another and to build systems basically within a gift economy, if you want to call it like that, um, they spring up in moments of disasters when the, when what we call the status quo or the normal, the state of normal that we are a part of, falls apart. People naturally fall into a state of mutual aid. There is this view, this sort of Hobbesian worldview, that as soon as the state and, and overbearing hierarchical structures in our society disappear and are, are unable to mitigate disaster or even help in the aftermath of a disaster, the idea is that everybody's just going to start looting and killing each other and violence is going to ensue. And what we have seen over and over again and what I had Desiree kind of discuss in depth in this conversation is that people naturally are predisposed towards kindness, towards empathy, towards mutual aid. And so what Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is just providing the context for people to help each other in the most effective way possible. And that is what's so inspiring about this organization. And so Desiree is an incredibly articulate person. I had a really great time uh, speaking to her about these subjects and getting a feeling and getting a, a, a deeper understanding of what this organization is all about. So if you want to learn more about Mutual Aid Disaster Relief and support their efforts... You can go to mutualaiddisasterrelief.org. I'll provide a link to that down in the description. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is on all the various social media sites, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and there's plenty of news stories about them, especially now that we've had these major hurricanes, major wildfires. And it's not just Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. There's a lot of grassroots organizations around California and other parts of the United States and around the world that are addressing the needs of communities, the needs of people in the face of escalating climate catastrophes. So without saying any more about this conversation, which I absolutely enjoyed and loved and learned so much from, here is my conversation with Desiree Lynn. Well, Desiree, thank you for taking the time. I, I reached out to uh, the uh, network that you're a part of, the Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, and they pointed me in your direction. Um, I've seen uh, doing some research into uh, this this network. I, I found a f- several interviews that you have been a part of discussing the work that this organization, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, uh, has been a part of. And so uh, I thank you again for taking the time to speak with me. Um, I think there's so <laughs> much to unpack, I guess, because I, I think when people talk about disaster relief, I think we often associate that with uh, either FEMA, which of course is a government agency, or we think of like Red Cross, or we think of these like charity organizations where there's there tends to be this sort of almost bureaucratic, centralized way that, that decisions are made regarding how resources mm-hmm. are distributed in disaster areas and disaster relief. Um, what I find really fascinating and I think incredibly important about what 
this organization, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, is is about is that it's it's much more of a decentralized network of people that are coming together to try to distribute resources and do grassroots organizing on the ground. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it's really important to lay out just a really fundamental element of this and to get your opinion and your perspective on this. You know, what is mutual aid? How can we define that within the context, particularly of disaster relief? So, yeah, looking through the lens of it as like a climate catastrophe um, sort of disaster, mutual aid is like um, the concept of acting in solidarity with people rather than acting as like, um, you know, this top down, you're coming into a community without listening to the community, without, you know, understanding or conceiving of the community and telling them what they need at a time where people are, you know, um, in what's really like tantamount to a shock and awe kind mm-hmm. of, um, you know, atmosphere, um, you know, when their communities are damaged. So it's treating people like they have no stake in their, their own rebuilding process. Um, so what mutual aid is, it's, it, it um, takes away all the bottlenecks, all of the hierarchical kind of charity top-down model and um, really just creates pathways where people, um, you know, where it encourages and empowers that natural state that we revert back to when um, disasters happen, where our natural state is um, acting in cooperation with each other, participating in, you know, in the survival of our own communities and our own neighborhoods and our own streets. So, um, you know, in the context of climate catastrophe, what mutual aid um, disaster relief does and promotes and encourages and amplifies is listening to people that are in impacted communities and amplifying and supporting and working with them um, based on their self-determined needs and what each unique community needs to survive and get through this Um you know, and respecting and um, having reference for the fact that folks know each other, they talk to each other, they live with each other, they know their unique situation, their unique lives, and they're going through a trauma of watching their community crumble. And in that moment of instability, it doesn't disempower them like, you know, top-down models like, you know, like government agencies like FEMA and, you know, nonprofits like the Red Cross come in and do and tell people what they need and further entrench that disempowerment and that sense of shock and awe by, you know, taking the reins and, and you know, you know, creating bottlenecks where there shouldn't be any. So it's just really um, a model that even FEMA has has stated openly that it's it's the quickest way to circulate relief that's the most empowering model it's the you know and that's what you need you need quick action you need support you need empowerment and you need to um you know back and amplify communities needs rather than treat them like they're powerless at a time where you know climate catastrophe that's already exacerbated by these institutions themselves um you know can can have them mired down in that feeling yeah, and I really like that you point to the fact that you're amplifying something that people are already not only capable of doing, but but have almost an instinctual drive to do anyway, which is when a disaster strikes in a community, um, when things really do fall apart. You know, people, yes, there there is this notion, and it's, and it's amplified by the media, which is that people start shoplifting and looting and, and chaos ensues and people start fighting. And, you know, th- that that notion is, is kind of a, it's a narrative. It's a myth that we're told. And, and I guess just to ask you what your, before we get into maybe some of the more dynamics of how mutual aid works um, on the ground, um, what was, I know that you've been in a lot of these situations. You, from what I understand, you've been to Puerto Rico after Hurricane uh, Maria hit. Uh, you worked on the mm-hmm. ground there. What is your experience that, with how people react to these disaster scenarios that we're seeing more and more of as, the, as you mentioned, climate catastrophe continues uh, to unfold on this planet? You mean the impacted communities themselves? Yes. Yeah. Like how, how do people react to these disasters in your experience? In, in every situation that I have been um, able to be a part of, I've witnessed communities literally like doing the work to take care of each other. And the, the biggest hurdle that communities have faced in my, in my view, just as is my reflection is, you know, the kind of barriers and um, bottlenecks that these government institutions and nonprofits have put up for them. But I've, there was so much um, community, um, uh, autonomous response, particularly in Puerto Rico with these um, centers of um, mutual aid 
that that opened up across the island when um you know when the the government completely uh, failed to give any kind of response and actually like turned around and critiqued the people as if they had no interest in their own recovery and they were doing nothing to, you know, pull themselves together, which was exactly the narrative that was propped up again and again and again. And the whole time that this was going on and this narrative was being circulated, the people of Puerto Rico had pulled together. They had created community kitchens with no power, with no running water, with their streets in ruins, with their homes in ruins, with their roofs gone, they were, you know, doing hundreds of meals a day in the community. They were um, organizing autonomous, um, like, uh, water brigades and community spaces and um, spaces where people could get medical um, support and medical access. Um, you know, uh, people were organizing for their neighbors to be able to get access to their things like insulin that, that, you know, you can't sustain in a situation where your power is out. So it was a, a really, um, I mean, it continues to this day, a really like powerful, powerful movement from the streets, from this grassroots, um, you know, stunning, um, movement that has to this day continued to support, people in the rebuilding process, you know, as, you know, and, um, you know, I've, I've seen it again and again, like in, in, uh, in New Orleans and the lower ninth ward and in the Carolinas across Florida, you know, it's just been, um, something that repeats itself. Cause like I said, people revert to that, you know, natural state of cooperation and autonomous response in the absence of the state, setting up these barricades in front of them and saying, you know, we know what you need and we're going to give it to you. And, you know, criminalizing people for, you know, this quote looting, which is, you know, an, another narrative, another toxic narrative that that's put out because capital needs to defend capital. That's its first priority. That's its only priority. And at the, at the, um, you know, at the expense of people getting things they need to survive, like, uh, you know, not to go on and on, but in, in the Carolinas were a dollar store. This wasn't a Macy's or a Saks Fifth Avenue. This was a dollar store where the manager was giving people things, openly giving people things. And the police moved in and arrested people and charged people that had undergone a severe, you know, a deadly historical hurricane and charged them with felonies and changed looting to a felony offense, you know? So, mm. um, yeah, the cooperation I've seen in these communities has been, you know, really incredible yeah yeah that and that that should be a um i mean it's it's amazing how that that side of it is suppressed so thoroughly because again it's it is the sense that we need to send law enforcement in to keep order but people are are inclined to keep order anyway i mean there's there's this sort of um I, I talk about it a lot and I don't need to go on this tangent, but like this sort of Hobbesian worldview that we have, which is that if the state or some other overbearing uh, entity organization doesn't come in and suppress our, you know, violent, inherently violent natures, then we're just going to start looting and killing each other and all kinds of chaos is going to ensue. And I, I'm not to say that that isn't um, maybe a, a small part of the picture, but in general communities, as you point to, will start to support each other and will build these networks and will try to feed each other and support each other. That is certainly a part of that. Um, and that needs to be emphasized. And, um, and so this, this, this natural inclination that human beings have to take care of each other, you know, how does the organization of, of mutual aid disaster relief work exactly? Like how are resources distributed? How do uh, different networks or different groups of people communicate with each other and understand how to coordinate activity? Because I think, again, people are stuck on this notion that if the communication and the organization and distribution of these resources are not centralized, there will be chaos that ensues. So to give people maybe a little bit of a layout of how this organization works, um, um, yeah, how, how does this, how, how does all of this play out in the, in a real life scenario? Sure, sure. So since it's decentralized and it's survivor centric, it looks different every time because of different communities that, you know, um, people work in and it's, it's, it's organized and um, populated and um, engined by people power of impacted communities. Um, what we do is like folks, um, you know, like, it's different folks involved in each disaster in those communities and people that come off site, there's always off site support that wants, you know, that are coming 
to to um to provide assistance in any way they can and share skills and you know um help out and um what um what we do is we have things like wish lists where people determine what they need for that community um like different tools different um you know food items different um mold remediation gear and things like this and they decide what they need and we amplify those needs through sharing wish lists through um you know sending um you know any kind of support we can their ways if um we can organize off-site teams that go and respond to these um disasters then we listen to the communities that are already organizing on the ground and then we further populate those movements and work with them um to um to help support and um you know and provide access to things like medical aid and tools and things like that and when um funds do come in the funds were on all volunteer network we just we provide support for for transportation for um you know for uh bringing in things like fuel that isn't readily available on the ground for things like medical solidarity and creating clinics on the ground um you know for getting box trucks into the area where people might not be able to get it um in Panama City right now there's a crew that's you know been on the ground since just a few days after hurricane michael came through there's a clinic there's a toll lending library there's a, a, every single day there's a distribution going on a mobile distribution where trucks and cars and caravans are bringing things to folks in impacted communities. But one of the main things in this particular case that we've done um, to talk about one unique issue of the kind of predation and opportunism of the state, um, you know, to these stunted communities, impacted communities after disasters is in this particular area in Panama city, we've had to do a lot of, um, you know, tenants rights, um, because the landlords have all come into the projects that were um, some damaged, some not so much, and illegally evicted all of the residents, some with an eviction notice that was like a five-sentence typed page. And these folks, um, there's families that have people that are, you know, um, the amputees or people that are um, having all kinds of, you know, um, medical issues. They're out of work because their work is heavily damaged. They have limited access to fuel and things, and they're telling them, really in just bold lettering leave immediately and without giving contingencies, you know, of where people can go or even considering the fact that people need to stay in that area because their doctors are there, their children's schools are there, their family and their support networks are there. So, you know, in every community it looks different, but really just um, amplifying like funds that come in, it's like, it's community driven. So no one in that's not on the ground is like making decisions for what funds are allocated for and where supplies are going. It's folks and autonomous movements on the ground that we really support and join with and, and, um, you know, support any kind of self-determined needs that are, that are coming out of those communities. Yeah. It just, when you talk about that, just reminds me so much of, of when Hurricane Katrina, uh, the, the fallout of that, that event and uh, the the lack of aid that the federal government was providing uh, for the people of of that region, and and I was trying to read a little bit about the bio, uh, the bio, I guess, or the the beginning of this organization. Uh, how did this idea come into existence? Um, I know that mutual aid itself is obviously as old as as humanity itself, but this this mm-hmm. network itself. Uh, where did it come from? Where, where was the beginnings of this organization? Sure, sure. So, um, some of the, a lot of the folks that are involved in, like, I guess, like the founding itself, um, worked at, um, you know, doing um, autonomous response in the Lower Ninth um, and other areas around New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Um, and then there were um, folks that did work in Haiti after the earthquakes, folks that did work um, after Superstorm Sandy um, with Occupy Sandy. So there was folks that had been involved in all these other mutual aid networks and then um, tried to make something that wasn't so disaster and regional specific. Mm. So like Occupy Sandy was very specific for that disaster. Likewise, you know, with um, efforts in New Orleans. So because these disasters are increasing so strongly, Every storm, literally, you hear about has this attached adjective that's like, it's historic, it's historic, it's historic. And these are just increasing. So um, mutual aid um, from a couple of years ago when it actually got started is, um, you know, non-disaster specific, non, um, you know, non-regional specific. And it's just a network that has... It's sort of like if you know um, Food Not Bombs, it's sort of like it's a movement that um, that 
can have autonomous pockets everywhere and autonomous decentralized movements everywhere, but it goes on the same guiding principles and the same vision of, you know, empowerment and solidarity, not charity and uh, uh, building power from the streets, from, from, you know, um, with the people and the impacted communities, you know, themselves rather than, you know, and, and being vocal and, and, and visible against, you know, actions of like federal government occupations like FEMA does and all the resources that they subsume um, in the face of this, when this, the, you know, in the bottlenecks that they create and the issues and the tensions and traumas and anxieties and the atmosphere that they stir up by their presence and by coming in with this strong bureaucratic hand and all of this red tape when that's the last thing that people need. People need quick access, mm-hmm. you know, um, so... It was a couple years ago, um, mutual aid disaster relief was founded, and um, mainly it was folks that came together and were doing autonomous work for you know over a decade since since Katrina happened, and and yeah, and it's since since then, sadly, there have been you know it's just been an increase every year in these disasters that are happening now. This with the fires and in California, Northern California, and and you know all of the intersecting issues like like. Per, inmate justice, like not, you know, having inmates out fighting for a a dollar an hour fighting fires and, you know, getting injured and Mm -hmm. just the, it, it it intersects with a lot of other movements. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, um, it's just last two years has just been like opening, opening doors and opening pathways and removing bottlenecks and, um, and trying to just connect people with each other so that there's support networks available for communities that endure these climate catastrophes. Right. And, and that's, um, it's like two, almost two questions that I have, but I almost want to ask at the same time, but that wouldn't be <laughs> maybe not the best way to approach it, but I'll kind of I'll try to unpack my thoughts here. The first thing I wanted to ask, and if you wanted to comment on this is, is this sort of radical or, uh, you know, what, what are the like principles of this sort of, cause this idea of, of doing this on the ground level in a decentralized fashion, I mean, if you want to put that in a political in a political context, that's anarchism in practice, and that goes in this whole idea we discussed about mutual aid being something that's very natural in the human uh, the human experience. You know that goes all the way back to one of the most famous anarchists, which was Peter Kropotkin. Kropotkin. Yeah, the the Russian anarchist. He was a a prince, I guess, that kind of gave up his nobility to to sort of be a, an anarchist, uh, you know, among the people. And and he had he had written this this book, you know, a Mutual Aid: A Factor of Evolution, which sort of makes the very very uh, you know it still holds up to this day. This idea that mutual aid is it is it is a factor of evolution, and that fits into this anarchist principle, this understanding that people don't thrive or don't do as well, they don't develop fully into the human beings that they truly could be under a top-down, hierarchical, oppressive um, institutions um, and, and form of social organizing. And I think that what uh, what this, this network you're a part of is embodying those notions in disaster relief. And to say, like you said, there's an intersection between, you know, uh, maybe prison abolition or or any of these other things that uh, other organizations and other movements that exist, which apply those same principles, but to different issues. But there is an obvious intersection between what you're a part of and what these other organizations, other movements are a part of as well. Um, and, and I think that that needs to come across that people can understand that when a disaster strikes, that the, the best way to approach these situations, um, is through this sort of anarchist principle, this anarchist perspective. And I think that's important to get across because people have, I think, a false understanding or false, um, uh, yeah, just a false perspective of what it means to be an anarchist and what it means to act as an anarchist, particularly in these disaster scenarios. Um, if you wanted to maybe comment on the principles of mutual aid, the principles of this disaster relief network uh, regarding maybe anarchism and these, what, we, what we would maybe frame as radical political ideas. Right. And I, I mean, I wouldn't attach, although... I I don't like naming like mm, yeah. um you know because there are folks from different political ideologies and socio-political ideologies that are involved in this autonomous because it is you know reverting to an actual state of being is you know what 
you know, cooperation. Um, but I, I mean, uh, principles of mutual aid, it's like, it's not just like the name of the group. This is a way of being, this is, um, like I said, it's solidarity, not charity. So we believe that rather than treating, um, survivors of climate catastrophe as, you know, consumers and that they're powerless and that we're coming in and we're, you know, handing them things and then heading out. We're understanding and respecting and um, amplifying and supporting and backing the fact that people have a stake in their own survival and the rebuilding of their communities. They know their communities. So solidarity, not charity is really important. And it's, it's really important in exercising dual power, which is, you know, creating the world that we want to see while challenging and resisting the one that is currently here and currently wreaking, you know, havoc and chaos on the rest of the people that are trying to, um, you know, struggle through it. Um, you know, so, um, solidarity, not charity is like a major tenet of mutual aid. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, and being, being, um, vocal against places that subsume, like I said, resources and, and create bottlenecks. Um, Another thing is, you know, um, being survivor centric, listening to communities and letting, you know, um, those autonomous movements um, be the ones that are leading the efforts and supporting those efforts and um, moving with those efforts. Horizontality and working on like a consensus based decision making process. You know, there are no hierarchical structures in, um, you know, in, in acting when you're acting with, you know, mutual aid, um, you know, not just on a, in a disaster context, but if you see capitalism itself as a disaster and the things that we have to endure, you know, like a mass incarceration and concentrated poverty, environmental racism, and all these issues that come about because of capitalism, um, you know, so working in um, a, a consensus-based way everyone is being heard and um you know we're being able to make decisions not based on um you know uh, a top-down way where people are being told what they need and people being told what you know kind of the direct inverse of what places like FEMA are doing um so yeah consensus-based decision-making process solidarity not charity autonomy um and being survivor centric and listening to communities and supporting and amplifying those efforts is really what um, mutual aid, you know, the the most succinct way that I can express what what the the ideology behind the, the, this movement is. Yeah, and I and I don't and no means do I wish to uh, project my own uh, <laughs> my own my own political leanings mm-hmm. or biases onto it. Uh, I just find that what I what I find fascinating is is obviously the empathy that comes with doing what you're doing is is really profound, but also this notion that when a disaster happens in a community, when we see the wildfires in California or the hurricanes uh, in the South or in the East Coast of the United States or any other part of the world that these things are happening, uh, it's like the spell of, as you mentioned, capitalism, this whole social relationship that's being cast over everything, that tends to break down in these situations. And what happens is, again, people fall back on what we are naturally predisposed to doing, which is taking care of each other. And that when that spell, as I, I could say, is lifted, it's as if we're regaining something. And it's obviously hor- horrific. I mean, uh, when we have little to no access to clean water, to food, to any of the resources that we need to just live in a, you know, fully, um, that is when we tend to break through that spell. But then I, I, what I hope, and, and this is almost the, rev- the, the revolutionary, if I could use that term, potential of these organizations is that in people recognizing that people can take care of each other in this way and that it is not absolute chaos when these things happen, that there is an order to this, people then may carry mm-hmm. that 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 experience they had into when, when, again, the spell is put back on and the government comes back in and everything is put back in order and everybody goes back to their jobs and everything is, quote, normal again, people will, ca- I hope, can carry with them that memory of being like, oh, we took care of each other. You know, there was something that came out of that experience that that will stay with you because unless you see it and you feel it and you experience it on the personal level, many people don't even believe it's possible. And I and I think that that's yeah. the truly beautiful thing about what this network is about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I'm I'm also I'm an anarchist, so I'm you know I just I I feel like 
I, I feel like in my experience is that what what capitalism's function, one of the major functions is in making people um in stripping people of their um of their autonomy and stripping them of of the 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 knowledge that we we are able to care for ourselves way more effectively um and more cooperatively than the state because the state has an interest in exploiting us. Mm-hmm. Like the state functions on exploiting um, the populace. So people, you know, so, so those narratives are critical to the state to have people believing that, you know, we don't have, you know, power in our everyday lives and we don't have power. Certainly when a climate um, catastrophe comes through and a natural disaster happens um, enough. So to, to be able to navigate an autonomous recovery response, you know, with, with our neighbors. Um, and, you know, if you look back on, you know, these disasters that have happened again and again and again, what you see is the, not the catastrophe of like people running through the streets and all kinds of um, chaos and mayhem happening. It's things like black water moving in mm-hmm. and terrorizing people and, um, you know, black water moving in and terrorizing people and racist and fascist and, you know, white vigilantes coming in and, you know, like they did at Katrina and, you know, murdering people of color and getting away with it and police abuses and uh, border enforcement, ICE, border patrol, these, the opportunist predators that come in, those are the disasters and the crisis that we're seeing when disasters happen. It's not people that are going to a dollar store and taking items that they need to survive that's directly next door to their community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but yeah. these narratives are critical to the state. It's critical to how they operate and to keeping their operations as status quo as possible. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you just one more question before we wrap it up? Because I know we only have about a half an hour, but I, I, I really like speaking with you. So thank you again for talking with me. Um, of course. Same here. Yeah. Um, so as, as you mentioned, you know, the climate, and I talk a lot about this on the podcast, is climate change and the ecological crisis and how things are unraveling rather quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, we see more severe hurricanes every year. We're seeing more massive historic wildfires every year. Um, so in, in California, I mean, one of the major problems is even if you weren't in the area where the fire was destroying, like, say, your home or, or, or your community, uh, the smoke and all of the pollutants, all of the toxic uh, materials that get burned up in the uh, in the fire, that gets released into the air. And you know, in the Bay Area in California, I was reading an article before we started this about how how bad it is that people can't even go outside because the air quality is so bad uh, that it's causing mm-hmm. all kinds of respiratory issues. And of course, we we could talk about you know cancer and and what could come about as a result of all these toxins being in the air as well. Uh, but something that, and it's not just uh, mutual aid disaster relief, there's other on the ground grassroots organizations that are working on the ground to help. Um, but what role, mm-hmm. you know, because we talked a little bit about the hurricanes and the disasters that come with these major storms, but there are so many different ways in which the climate is unraveling, uh, you know, wildfires being one of them. So if you want to talk about this very specific case of what's going on in California, um, how has mutual aid played a role in helping people who are being affected by these fires? Uh, what role have they played in that? So I haven't been to California in the wake of the um, fires. Okay. North Valley Mutual Aid. North Valley Mutual Aid is an autonomous movement of folks on the ground in the communities of the communities that um you know, have had to watch their neighborhoods and their streets literally race to the ground from these fires. And California's air quality is now the worst in the world um, because of the fires. Um, but um, the efforts that I've, you know, seen or um, or been able to, like, support and amplify through through our networks has been, like, folks are, um, you know, their North Valley has, um, has recently formed they're um, doing, you know, uh, trainings. They have working groups going. They're, um, you know, they're working to um, create tenants that are going to support the community's rebuilding efforts. I've, um, I've heard that there's a, um, like, an encampment that's a uh, density that's gone up outside of a Walmart. And um, I really, uh, like, hesitate to speak uh, too much about it because okay. I haven't been there. And, sure. I, and I want them to tell the, their story. I don't need, they don't need me to tell but, um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I know. If folks are looking to support autonomous folks on the ground, there's a group, uh, North Valley Mutual Aid, that's really, um, you know, doing incredible work in in organizing working groups to to start getting, you know, um, mobilizations of of uh, autonomous like medics and um, supplies and distribution and different tenets of recovery together. Um, Okay. Yeah, now, and I, I believe I heard that Sunday, um, today, shelters would be closing. I just hope that the tent cities that have formed of people that are now houseless and had to watch their homes burn um, and escaped with their lives and possibly lost family and loved ones um, and community members aren't faced with the same horrible specter of police opportunism and violence that have happened in protecting capital and protecting um, commodity and yeah. as like I've seen in virtually every other space that's been, um, you know, enduring climate change and climate catastrophes. Yeah, I, I, I've I've heard of there was a tent city, as you mentioned, in uh, I guess it would have been a Walmart parking lot or, or some space like that. And there was somebody, mm-hmm. uh, somebody within the police or, or some law enforcement agency was telling them they had to leave. Um, nobody wants to take responsibility for who actually made that order. Apparently I was reading a little bit about that. Um, but you know, there's no, again, these, the state and FEMA and all these you know charity organizations, they're not providing solutions. They're not helping these people. They're not going to give them their homes back. They're not going to give them any of the resources they really need. And yet they're telling them to get the hell out, which is such a, mm-hmm. such an example of how poorly they're able to, how how incapable they are of actually addressing the problem and and trying to i don't know i'm not sure what their their whole motive would be i guess to to protect the property of of whoever wherever they're camping i i can't speak on that for sure and i, I don't want to be quoted on that because i don't know exactly the reasons for it but uh yeah. it, it's it's really uh it's really devastating and, and it's really hard to wrap my head around what it would be like to just see your your city your community just completely destroyed in the face of this massive wildfire it's so my main point that I want to get to here is, you know, I, I was having a discussion with um, a few weeks ago. I, I had I had a two part interview where I interviewed a climate, uh, or he's an environmental journalist named Dar Jamal, and he does really great work dis- discussing abrupt climate disruption. And then I had a second interview with a political theorist uh, named well, he calls it goes by Doctor Bones. I don't know if you're familiar with Doctor Bones. Uh, really interesting guy. <laughs> Yeah, and and he mentioned your organization because I was asking, like, as the climate changes, as things get worse, what kind of – I wanted to really hone in on mutual aid because, as again, as things unravel, we need to really wrap our head around and begin to open our hearts to the idea that we are completely and totally capable of taking care of each other in the face of these disasters. And, again, I think that by demonstrating that that's possible – I think think we can use – the the one thing I think we can use to our – um, credit is that while we, while communities, uh, uh, you know, uh, from East Coast to West Coast are unique and and diverse and creative in our mm-hmm. solutions and our working together and our cooperation, our rebuilding and our response to capitalism and our response to the state, the state is incredibly predictable. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel completely comfortable um, you know, probably guessing what why they have security or they're telling people from the Walmart parking lot to leave. It's because in their darkest fantasies, people are, you know, uh, stealing things and they, mm. you know, they can't have people taking things that, you know, that they, um, you know, need to defend to, to, to any degree to, to, to the point where they're willing to, to kill or arrest or jail and prison charged with felonies, people that are going and taking things they need to survive. So I'm guessing because Walmart is such, you know, uh, a big house of commodity that their darkest fantasies are that people are going to go and take things, you know, um, (laughs) when they should be concerned about getting things to people, because when you, uh, when provisions are there, people have what they need and they feel empowered, they, you know, then they can survive and they can, you know, but, but I, I don't know. I think if we just understand that the state is very predictable in their actions and their violence and they're trying to have a monopoly on violence and the way they respond and how opportunist they are, um, then we can, you know, use our creative minds to, to, um, you know, learn how to keep each other as safe as possible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, yeah, and, 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 and what you just said is, is absolutely true. And I just want to point people in this direction more and more because, again, the specter of, of abrupt climate change is so 
it's it's frightening and i don't know if people know how to respond appropriately i guess or, or to f- to sense that things can be different than what you think they can be i guess to open up this possibility within them that we are capable of doing this that we're capable of of addressing these catastrophes as they unfold um and begin to take care of each other because the seed of that within the 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 center of that notion is this very radical idea which is that we don't need the state. We don't need capitalism in order to function. And, you know, that famous, uh, it's been passed around so much, I don't even know who to attribute it to, but it's like people have an easier time imagining the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I think we need to get past mm. that. You know, we need to realize that, no, we need to imagine the end of capitalism because that's the only way we can possibly address the crises as they unfold. And, um, and I think, and I think that what you're doing with this organization, everybody that's a part of mutual aid disaster relief, I admire you greatly for it. And, um, and, uh, and I would ask again, like, before we go, before we wrap this up, if people want to find out more about your organization, I know there's the website, mutual aid disaster relief, uh, .org. Um, but, uh, is there any other Mm -hmm. resources, any other places that you would like to direct people towards? Well, there's a there's a tour that's currently going around on the West Coast. There was one on the East Coast that went to, I think, 40 different community spaces. Um, there's tours that are going around. You can find the tour schedules on, on MutualAidDisasterRelief.org. And they're, um, you know, um, having events trying to discuss, like, um, climate change and capitalism and how capitalism, you know, devastates communities. Um so if you um, if you're in a community where one of those tours are coming through, that's amazing because the tour just went through California just before, like immediately before the fire started. Um, and and also if you go to our you know social media, we have Instagram mutually disaster relief, we have Facebook mutually disaster relief and Twitter. Um, and you know just following like stories and blogs that are coming out from communities on the ground that are you know engaged in these efforts and you know working to. Um, you know, to restore their communities, you know, so any of those, any of those um, pathways, people can, you know, plug in and get involved. And, you know, um, as far as the wildfires, like I said, North Valley Mutual Aid um, are the folks that, you know, I would defer people to if they want to find out, you know, how they can amplify those efforts or support or populate those efforts. Okay. Well, thank you for pointing us in those directions. And I'll, when I release this episode, I'll put all those down in the description so people can find them. Um, Thank you. Desiree, thank you for uh, speaking with me. Thank you for talking about this. I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, for sure. Same here. Thank you for having me. Hey, dig it. I feel that actions speak louder than words. Words can be deceiving. Often they can really hide one's feelings. You know, man, what you say is jive. What you do, that's what really means something. Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week, and as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, Take it easy, dude, but take it. <laughs> <laughs>